0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit we
1: Well, take your Bibles and join me in John chapter 17. John 17, we are working our way toward the conclusion of this final discourse of Jesus. His last conversation he has with his men before his sufferings in Gethsemane, and his execution the following morning around 9 a.m. on the cross. He spent the better part of the evening with them at dinner talking about his departure, talking about his final instructions to love one another, his final instructions to depend upon the Holy Spirit, his final instructions on how to live faithfully when he's not present physically. Now he comes to probably the bottom of the Kidron Valley, about to pull those inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, into that inner sanctum where he'll go and pray and sweat great drops of blood as he leaves them only a few feet away. He begins to pray. As we said last week, this is really the Lord's Prayer because no one can pray this prayer whereas Matthew 6 is the disciples' prayer where we can pray that prayer. Jesus could never pray The prayer he taught us to pray. Ever, could he? Forgive us this day our sins. He could never pray that. Nor could we pray his prayer. How could any of us say restore to us the glory with which we share with you before the world began? Two distinct instructive dialogues that the Lord has with the Father. For our attention today, we're going to look simply at one verse. This is... I know everybody says that this was the one or that one's the one. This one is my life verse. This is the verse that pulls me like a magnet toward equilibrium, toward my simple priority, toward what I'm supposed to be about as a believer more than any other verse in the Scriptures. This is the one that is my magnetic epicenter. Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We have now lived in Kansas for a little more than a year, and just still getting to know the area. I'm very well acquainted with all of the local barbecue restaurants, and am developing some expertise in those, and we'll be glad to share that expertise with you anytime you want to go. That's been fun. about two weeks ago, I was introduced to something in the Kansas City area that I had not been accustomed to, not been acquainted with or introduced to previously. My wife and I needed a certain piece of furniture, so we went out to this store called Nebraska Furniture Mart. I thought we were going to look at a couple of couches. I had no idea that it has its own zip code. It's it's own county and city with a mayor and a municipality. It's, that is the biggest store in the history of storedom. I mean, it is unbelievable. And here's what we found that was happening. We went in to look at a certain piece of furniture. And about three hours later, realized we looked at everything else in the store. I think, is there anything that that place doesn't sell? It even has seized candy from California, for crying out loud. It was incredible. What we found, though, is it was very interesting to go in with one thing on our mind and to suddenly and instantly get distracted by a lot of other good things. There weren't bad things in there. There were some very good things in there. But what we went to focus on, we got distracted by other things. That is such a simple parable for what's going on in this passage. The focus of eternal life is intended by God to be His Son, Jesus Christ, and it's easy to get inside of that wonderful storehouse of blessings and look at all of the blessings and forget what drew us in in the first place. For the most part, doctors make diagnoses based on symptoms. In other words, if you have a runny nose, a sore throat, watery eyes, the doctor will triangulate those symptoms and diagnose the illness. Once he or she, Susan, once he or she has figured out what the problem is, they'll treat it accordingly. Now, there are exceptions to making diagnoses based upon symptoms. If you walk into an emergency room with a rod of steel rebar going through your head, he's not likely to say, I wonder what the problem is. Here's some kaopectate for your tummy and some exfoliating soap for your complexion. If you have a bar through your head, it's pretty obvious what's the problem. The same holds true for our souls. If our faith is struggling, we need to make an accurate and clear diagnosis of the problem. If we have something major wrong and we want to make the right diagnosis, we'll lead to the right conclusion on how to deal with it. But the wrong diagnosis leads to the wrong protocol. We could be a lot of trouble if we make the wrong diagnosis of our soul and pursue the wrong way to fix it. What's wrong with our soul disorder? Let me ask a simple question. Are we in any way staking our eternity on a vague and perhaps misguided understanding of what eternal life really is? What it's meant to be like to be saved? What it's meant to be To be saved? What do we enjoy? What do we feel? What do we pursue as Christians? What's the basic reason for salvation? It's so easy to get caught up in the fray of Christian culture and secretly wrestle with the fact that we are unsure if we're really converted or really saved or really following the path of spiritual maturity. It's easy for us to feel like everyone else is doing okay, and I alone am struggling in the way that only I understand. The identity and the condition of our soul is always a mirror reflection of our view of God. We will never rise higher than our view of God internal struggles, emotional instability, upsetting doubts, these are really theological problems. These are problems with doctrinal confusions. Wrong thinking about eternal life, wrong thinking about Jesus, wrong thinking about salvation can metastasize into a debilitating soul disorder. And it's not very long before a wrong little thinking becomes a wrong world wrong wrong view of The wrong little part of our thinking becomes an entire worldview. It's the law of the angle, right? If you have two uh, lines at the beginning of the angle, they're not very far apart. But the longer you go, the further apart they get. And unless our thinking is constantly drawn back in parallel to God's word, we're going to, because of the law of depravity, always be moving off-center, away from that angle. John 3.16 is familiar territory to everyone. It's familiar territory even to people who aren't believers. It's held up at football games when people are kicking extra points. People strap it on themselves and run across the playing field. I was at an intersection of two streets, and a guy was standing with a big sandwich board placard that simply said, John 3.16. I love that verse. How can any Christian not love John 3.16? For God so loved the world, you can say it with me, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I found you King James people out there, right there. What do we love about that verse though? What promise does it contain that makes this verse so universally helpful, so significantly important? God loved the world, so he gave his only son, but why did he do that? To what effect? Listen, I I love so many of you. I love Mission Road Bible Church. I I can't think of any place I would rather be in ministry, but i got to confess to you. There's not one person in this room I love enough to kill my son for. If it's between you and my son, you're in trouble. Sorry to say... God loves entirely different than us, that he demonstrated his love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Why did he do this? So we could have, what's the verse say? Eternal life, everlasting life. But have you ever noticed something intriguing about this offer of eternal life in John 3.16? The verse does not describe what eternal life actually is. Now, I know what you're saying. Come on, Rick. This is basic etymology. This is English 101. Defining eternal life is the simplest thing in the world. I mean, just look at the two words, eternal, forever, life, living. Living forever. That's eternal life, right? And I would say partly right. If you just looked at the nomenclature, at the semantic domain, at the vocabulary, at the lexicography, all that means is the definitions. You would have eternal, forever, life, living, living forever, and we would say it means living forever, and we would be partly right but not entirely right biblically or theologically. In our Christian understanding of the idea of eternal life, I think it's becoming an unfortunate synonym. Eternal life means going to heaven. And that's such a small part of what it's intended to mean. Remember that even an unbeliever has life that's eternal, right? The unbeliever will live forever apart from the blessing of God in a real hell. So in a sense, the unbeliever lives forever just like we have eternal life life. So what's the difference? What's the substantive difference? Well, we find out here in John 17, 3, in Jesus' final prayer with his disciples, the Lord himself gives us a definition of eternal life. And interestingly, it has nothing to do with time. Look at the verse again. This is eternal life. He's about to define eternal life. Now, whatever comes after that from the Lord's mouth, from the incarnate God's utterance is of epic importance. He is about to define eternal life. What is it, Jesus? This is eternal life, namely, that they may know you. Who's the you? The only true God. How do you do that? And, or with, or by, or through, Jesus Christ Whom you sent. We're going to break this verse down into two simple, simple points. Two dimensions of the gift of eternal life. Two dimensions of the gift of eternal life. The first is obvious just from what it says. It's an eternal gift. An everlasting gift. The first dimension of the gift of eternal life is it's an everlasting gift. Find this out in the first part of verse 3. This is... Life that's eternal, everlasting life. Now, we got to go back and recover some ground of where this comes from, from back in verse 2. We looked at this extensively last week. We'll go back to verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. We studied that such a precious moment where Jesus in John 13, 1, and now here as he's praying in 17, 1 says, after saying for three years, the hour has not come. The hour has not come. It's not my time. Now he says the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It's interesting to me that his synonym for death by crucifixion, being buried in a grave and being raised from the dead, his synonym for that is glorifying God. That tells you something significant about his worldview, about his view of the gospel, his view of death, his view of the substitutionary atonement that he was about to pay for sin. Then verse 2, Even as you gave him, that's God the Father giving Jesus, authority over all flesh, that reminds us of Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says, after the resurrection. That And here's where we drill down a little bit. All to whom you have given him, that to all whom you have given him, he may give give eternal life. Now, here's what's happening. God the Father, incredible. God the Father has a love gift that he gives to God the Son. And that love gift are believers, It's a group of people he draws to himself. It's a group of people he elected, a group of people he predestined, a group of people he chose, a group of people he specifically marked out to give eternal life to. Now interestingly, it instantly raises the whole concept and the question of predestination and election. We looked pretty intensively at that last week. Especially through John 6, where the fact that God chooses and God draws, no one can come to the Father except by Him, is laid right next to verses that say, whoever thirsts, let him come. And I'm okay leaving those in tension. I'm okay with those having questions in my soul. I've been asked over to Rick, are you a Calvinist? And my answer is always, what do you mean by Calvinist? And secondly, I am a Calvinist with lots of questions and lots of tensions. There are things I just don't fully understand. A few weeks ago, or a few months ago actually, we were studying this back in John chapter 14. And I read a quote then that had been significantly helpful to me, and uh, so many of you asked for that quote or asked me to repeat it. I wanted to insert it here again. It's from a a little book by Mark Webb entitled, What Difference Does It Make? He tells of an interaction he once had as an instructor when he was teaching on election, and this has been so helpful to me. He says this, After giving a brief survey on these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, This is the most awful thing I ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved. Receiving only the elect. I answered, he said. I answered her in this vein You misunderstand the situation. You are visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging and crowding to get into the door. And God is saying to various ones, Yes, you may come, but not you. And yes, you would come, but not you. The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet, all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops... This one and and that one and this one over here and one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who would otherwise have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. And what kind of response, grounded as I believe in Scripture, that kind of response, rather, grounded as as I believe it is in Scripture, does put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? If you perish in hell, blame yourself, as it is entirely your fault. But if you should make it to heaven, credit God, for that is entirely His work. To Him alone, Belongs all praise and glory for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. End quote. That's a very helpful perspective in my own thinking about that. Remember, uh, Horatius Bonner said our su- our problem with God's sovereignty in salvation arises from our suspicion of His heart. Now this all comes into clear focus, if you could just take a quick second, turn over Romans chapter 3. Can't wait to get to this section of Scripture here in a few months, I think, when we'll be studying the book of Romans. Paul's quoting Old Testament Scripture, some Psalms, when he begins in verse 10. Just as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. No one... You know, I hear this argument well we have free will. We we don't have free will. Romans 6 says we're slaves to unrighteousness. Our, our will is not free, it's bound to sin. None who none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands and there is look how clear is this in verse 11. There is none who seeks for God. All, not some, all have turned aside together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throats an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Lips, Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and their path of peace they have not known. Here's why. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I praise God for the unspeakable precious gift and blessing of sovereign grace in predestination and election because had I had a choice, I would have never chosen him. Only God changes that heart. Verse 2 says, back to John 17, that to all whom you have given him, God gave some to Christ. He may give eternal life. Now we find out this eternal life, and we find out, first of all, it's a life that's everlasting. It will never end with Christ because of Christ. It's an everlasting gift just by defining it. Eternal life, never ending. That's true. But now we get into this second dimension of the gift of eternal life, and this is where it gets really, really inviting. Number two, it's a relational gift, it's a relational gift gift. Look at the end of verse 3. That they may know you, the only true God, and you can supply the verb, and know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Surprising little there about living forever, right? Nothing, it seems, about heaven. Everyone is listening and Jesus takes the opportunity to define eternal life and he defines it, how? By knowing, by relating. Eternal life is not a quality and a quantity of life after we die. Eternal life is a relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. Very simply spelled out here. It's knowing the one and only true God knowing why he sent his son to the world that he loved. But how can we do that? How can we know that we know this God? I mean, think about it. The five senses don't work with God, do they? We can't see him or touch him or hear him outside of his word, not audibly. Our God-given senses cannot sense God remarkably enough. And in the next breath, Jesus fleshes out his definition. Literally, quite literally, he fleshes it out. Knowing the only God is knowing Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. Seems a little strange the way he words it. I mentioned this last week. This is the only place in in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus prays about himself in the third person. It's very awkward in the Greek. It's even as awkward in the English. It would be tantamount to me getting together with you before the service and saying, okay, let's pray for the service. I want to pray, and I'm praying. I want to pray for Rick Holland, the preacher, and that his sermon is is acceptable. You would go, that's weird, man. Why are you praying about yourself like that? And yet, Jesus prays for himself in the third person. Now, my question is, why? Wouldn't this be awkward to hear him pray like that? doesn't pray like this in the rest of the sermon. He's going to change to second person in just a few verses, talking about you and interacting with God. Why does he pray about himself in the third person? One of the reasons is, you got to mark this down, and this is amazing in Jewish evangelism, is he calls himself in the presence and under the accountability of prayer before God, he calls himself the Messiah. He says, I'm Jesus The Christ, the anointed one. I am the Messiah. He's identifying himself as Jesus Christ. So every time you read in the epistles, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, remember that that all came from Jesus' own signature in this prayer. He knew that down through the ages there would be every opportunity to pollute and dilute and update the definition and understanding of which is the key to the blessedness of all humankind. And so Jesus saw to it that he inscripturated, signed, prayed with all the passion of his perfect being who he is. Canonized, crystallized in these words is the real promise of all those ball game banners. In John 3.16. What is eternal life? Here's eternal life. It's knowing Jesus. It's knowing God the Father through Jesus. What did he tell Thomas? If you've seen me, Philip, brother, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let's say it this way. Becoming a Christian is engaging in a lifetime of pursuing the knowledge of Christ. Look at the end, the last verse in 2 Peter. Um, This is... We should have a one-year exposition on this verse. I won't do that, but we'll do a, it. would be certainly worthy. A one-year exposition just on this verse. Second, the last verse in 2 Peter chapter 3. As Peter, this is the last thing he's going to write before he's going to be crucified upside down on behalf of the Lord. What's, the last, what's Peter's last message, the last thing he would want to say. This is the PS, the last final thing Peter wants to say to the church. Verse 18 of chapter 3, 2 Peter. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You want a footnote? You want a shorthand? You want Cliff's notes on Christianity, on how to grow? There it is. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, we, we tend to default to making our Christianity behavior modification. Trying better, hard, doing harder things, uh, uh, making a better effort to do this, making a better effort not to do that. That's the caboose. It's not the engine. Eternal life is knowing, knowing, knowing Christ. I had a, a gentleman recently pretty upset with me because I said the gospel is a person, not a plan. A gospel, of course, it involves a plan. I mean, you start with the Genesis chapter 3, the serpent will crush; be crushed by the Savior. I understand the plan. It goes all the way through the redemptive thread of Scripture. But the good news, which is the gospel, the good news is Jesus. He is the good news. He provides eternal life. Everything in this life is disposable except Jesus. You can do without anything. You can do without food and water. You can die of starvation because Paul said for me to live is Christ and because of that to die is what gain. Paul's example and Jesus' definition shape or really they should reshape the focus of our faith. A distinction must be made here, though, between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. I took the English as Bible literature in college, and my professor knew a lot about Jesus. He knew a lot about the history of, of, um, of Israel. He knew a lot about the geography of, of Israel and Palestine and Galilee and Nazareth and Syria and Damascus. He knew a lot about that, but he did not know the Savior himself. Whatever it means to know Christ, it must be the most important thing in our lives. Pair Jesus' definition of eternal life with his definition of condemnation. I mean, it goes hand in glove. Eternal life, knowing Christ and knowing the Father. Basis of condemnation, Matthew chapter 7. Depart from me, I... Never, what? New you. It's relational. It's not just transactional. We don't walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card, go to camp, throw a pine cone in the fire. If we want to give God our time, throw our watch in the fire. If we want to give God something else, throw it in the fire. That's not Christianity. It's not decisional. It's relational. It's knowing the living, risen Savior. The great gospel which we considered in the last few chapters, the great gospel that he has not only outlined, but that he dies for brings us to this hallowed place in our thin understanding of how to proceed. But it also brings us to the place where we know where we can be satisfied in our faith. How can you really Get your act together. How can you really get traction in your spiritual life? How can you really turn things around? How can you really experience that abundant life that Jesus promises? How can you really do it? Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord because this is eternal life that we know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. When God gives salvation to a person, he calls them, listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1, nine, into fellowship with his son. What does that mean? It means we have a relationship with his son. Fellowship with our living redeemer in Job 19.25. It's a tangible sensation of our faith. This fellowship, this relationship is real. It's as real as a shared meal. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. That's how close he describes his fellowship. It's like like having a meal with someone. He defines and he expects that kind of interaction. Now you're saying, okay, I believe you, Jesus, but how in the world can I enter into, can I say the word, that experience, that fellowship? Turn back over to John chapter 14. We were here only months ago. How can you know Christ in an experiential way? John 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will, this is just absolutely amazing, and will disclose myself to him. There's that intimate, real, experienced, experiential fellowship. But how do you get there? Go back to the first verse. You love who Christ is and you obey him. How can you love and obey Christ? You have to read the Bible. That can't happen in a vacuum. It all comes from drawing our understanding of God through Christ from Bible reading and Bible study and interactive fellowship with one another so that the Word comes alive in our mind and it dances as more than history, but as an invitation to know the living, risen Savior. Turn to Ephesians 4. I... I, I, um... This is one of those verses that takes you entirely by surprise. It, if you're reading this the first time and you'd never heard it it, it, it would strike you as very, very awkward. But it's intended to be that way. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now, Paul's telling the Ephesians how to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord. That you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. There's our first clue. That Gentiles walk, unbelievers and pagans walk in the worldview of their thinking, in the futility, the uselessness of their minds. Christianity is fundamentally rational. It's about what we think and how we think. Because being darkened in their what? Understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with grittiness. Now, stop right there. Paul is about to say that that's not what you're like. That's, that's not what you did. That's not how you live. And you would expect him to say, we don't live that way. We've learned a better way. We know what God commands. We know what God expects. We have the commandments. Listen to what he says. That you did not learn Christ in this way. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say you didn't learn a different way to live. He says you are different because you learned Christ. The person of Jesus. Now keep going. Verse 21. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is where? In Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you will lay aside the old self, which being corrupted, accordance with lust and deceit, that you will be renewed where? In the spirit of your mind and put on a new self in the likeness of God which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. There's so much instructive there. It's all about our mind. What do we do with our mind? We focus on Jesus. We grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. The more we understand the person of Christ, the more we understand the infinite value of his sacrifice and the infinite unworthiness of our own souls. How do you do that? You read the scriptures to that end. You look for Christ. You pray to that end, Lord, help me grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You understand doctrine to that end. It doesn't do us any good if, well, old Puritan said, what good is it if we're sound on the atonement, if the atonement does not make us sound? Doctrine is useless unless it produces a love for Christ. The devil, get this, has very good doctrine. We evangelize to that end. We tell people, we give a defense for the hope that's within us. What did Paul do before Felix and Agrippa? His life was on the line. What did he say? Can I tell you what Jesus did in my life? Can I tell you how he saved me? John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, huh, Jesus, he has explained him. It's the Greek word for exegete. Jesus has exegeted, explained, unpacked who God the Father is. First John, you have to see this. This is an underliner and a highlighter, an asterisk or whatever we do in our Bible. This is one of those. 1 John chapter 5, the very last section of John's epistle. Remember John, same author who we're reading here who recorded Jesus' prayer. In the very next to last verse, how much of an impact did Jesus' prayer make on John? There's so much in here. The next time you get that knock on the door and those people are going to come to your... You go and answer the door and they begin explaining to you that Jesus is not God. He's a God but not the God. And they say, nowhere... This has happened, happened to me in a Madrid um, place uh, where um, uh, we... I like to get those people at my door and talk to them a long time so they don't go to anyone else's door. And this guy tells me, Jehovah's Witness, he says, he has a different translation of John 1, you know that, right? And he says, nowhere in the Bible does it explicitly say that Jesus is God. Is that right? Let's go back to elementary school in English class, the law of the nearest antecedent, right? Right? Whatever you say describes what's closest by it, and let's apply that to what John says in 1 John. And, verse 20, we know that the Son of God, that's Jesus, has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. Next verse, and you could translate this, Who is the true god and eternal life. Can that be any more clear that Jesus is God? <laughs> Thank you. Look down at the verse though, that we may know him who is true. Truth Knowing him, Bible, Scripture, in canonization of God's truth, reading, studying, moving toward, loving, knowing, obeying Christ, they're all wrapped up together. But look how he defines it. Jesus, who, last phrase, is the true God, and who is Jesus? What does the last phrase say? He is eternal life. If to know Jesus in John 17, 3 is eternal life, do you think John got the message when he turns around and records this? That's why Paul describes his mission like this. Colossians 1, 28. We proclaim him. I love the King James, how it says it. Him, It's the first place in the Greek. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ, and we don't have time to go to Philippians 3, verse 8, what does Paul say? Paul prays that what Jesus says happens in his life, that I may know him. Read Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him, oh, that I may know him. Paul doesn't, are you saying you don't know Christ, Paul? This is the guy who wrote Romans and Galatians. And you're saying, oh, that I may know him. Is he acting like he has no concept of who Jesus is? No, no. He's asking for what Jesus is praying and what John defines. Oh, that I may know Christ. Is your eternal life, is your relationship with God, is your salvation refined by and defined by and consumed by knowing and pursuing Christ? Or is he like that couch we were looking at? Went into that furniture store looking for a couch and found myself looking at a thousand other things. They were all good things. There's a lot of great things in salvation you can look at. But all that is in reference to Christ. If eternal life is defined by knowing Christ and there's no no burden in your life, no passion in your life to know Christ, can I just beg you to consider whether you really are saved? There's a difference between not wanting to go to hell and wanting to be with Christ. There's a difference between wanting to be saved from bad things and wanting to pursue God in the flesh who if he has resurrected from the dead, and we believe he has, and he sits at the right hand of God, and he promises us his presence, and he promises to disclose himself to us, that changes everything. That's a game changer. He is alive and ready and willing to be known and commands us to know him. Wouldn't it be great if we changed up our our language a little bit? Instead of saying, I'm a Christian, I love saying I'm a Christian, but instead of saying, I'm a Christian, just look at somebody saying, say, I know Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. And that will provoke a discussion or two. Well, what do you mean by that? I'd love to tell you what I mean by that. Do you, will you know Christ? Paul said, my one desire, my sweeping motivation is that I may know him. If you don't, in a few minutes, our prayer room is going to be open to my right, and we'll be glad to talk to you about questions you may have, anything that's troublesome, anything that's been said today or in the Bible or things going on in your life that you want to pray for or have prayer for, we would love to be able to do that. Uh, John Rosenbaum is going to be over there in a minute to meet you. And I want to ask Tony if you would, to make your way up here. And uh, Tony has served in so many capacities. Deacon, elder, fix-it guy, everything. And uh, you have been a huge blessing. Tony, I remember coming back In 2003, to do a Bible conference back here at Mission Road Bible Church and meeting you. And uh, we were over in that dilapidated, falling down house doing a radio show. And um, it was over that way, yeah. And uh, that's the first time I interacted with you. And I remember walking away thinking, This guy's all right. In fact, I remember thinking, This guy knows Christ. And we're very thankful to you. Tony and his wife will be leaving. And I just wanted to give you a quick moment to. Greet the people, and then we'd close us in prayer, would you?
0: Well, good Greet. <laughs> um, Aaron would be a complete and total disaster, and Rick would fumble his way through the Scriptures, so I'd go, ah, eh, you know, at least we're going somewhere where, you know, Uh, unfortunately, as usual, Aaron did his thing and Rick brought it as he does Sunday after Sunday. We are uh, going to miss the ministry here tremendously. There, there truly are no words. Um, Angie and I got married in 1990. I worked for Boss Lighting at the time and job transfer brought us here in 1992. Rod and Faith came in January and then Angie and I were right behind them in March of that same year. And we were extremely homesick when we first came here. Um, We probably, for the first month I bet we went back three times out of four Sundays in a row. Is that about right? I mean, it probably was. We were that homesick. So we would go to Lincoln, stay with our family, and then we would get in the car. I'm sorry, as we were leaving here we would be driving home Oh, we're gonna go home for the weekend. And then we started getting plugged in and started serving here, developing friendships, and it really wasn't too terribly long before when we were coming back from Lincoln, we thought, all right, it's time to pack up now and go home. Kansas City is home, and the fact that we are moving to Woodward, Oklahoma, for a time, will not change the fact that Kansas City is home. That's, that's the reality. Our, our hope is that we will get plugged in and start serving and, and develop relationships and friendships there sooner rather than later so we can start to feel like Oklahoma is home. <laughs> Choke on those words. <laughs> um, sorry. But we're confident that that will happen. Um, as I as I look around and, and look at so many faces uh, of you guys and relationships that we've developed over the years, it's it's um, it, uh, we're we're overwhelmed. I had a conversation with Eric Thompson a few months ago. Is Eric are you here? There he is. And and we were we just and I think I've had this conversation with several of you that w- we talked about how there are so many people here that we know we could call in the middle of the night and they would be there to serve us in whatever way we needed. There are, there are so many. So I, I hate to um, single anybody out, um, because I know I'm going to be sliding some folks. I, I, there are so many people here that I love. But I, I have to single out Eric Johnson. Eric is not um, simply like family to me. He's, he's my brother. And, and to leave knowing that that relationship is going to not be gone but be different is extremely difficult. Um, he, like a dummy, said last week, oh, it's going to be great because it's, we'll see each other more often. And I thought, what, what? that only makes sense coming from you, Eric. <laughs> um, but because of the connection that I will have with um, Eric and Selty's family in Oklahoma, that's what brought all of this about, th- there will certainly be a different relationship and a, and a different level of connection. But to not have that regular interaction Will be uh, a hump that I have to get over, and it will take some time. Um, I would also say that, you know, I, I'm notorious for giving my wife uh, a whole rash of grief on a regular basis. You, and everyone talks about how she must be reserving a special crown in heaven for having to tolerate this, but. I, <laughs> I, I'm gonna get the last word, so for those of you that are amen and don't um, this this move would not be possible without the support from Angie. God has given me a tremendous woman to be my wife and to raise our family, and I am absolutely stupefied by what she um, puts up with by the way she shepherds our kids um, and by the way that she has stood behind me as we embark on a a major life change so I I just wanted to say thank you hun for for loving me and our family Um, I'm going to leave with a, a few verses and then I'll pray and Get the heck out of here. Ugh. This is 1 John chapter 3. This has nothing, nothing really to do with us leaving. I'd love to give you a profound verse, but I just love these verses. Um, and I'm certain for all of us who are, are in the family that these are verses that you love as well. This is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God and such we are for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him beloved now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Lord, I am so incredibly grateful for bringing our family here to Kansas City and allowing us to be a part of this local body. And God, while proximity will certainly change the way relationships are manifested, It won't change the reality that um, we're family. God, my prayer is that you would put a special protection around the leadership and around the local body here so that Mission Road will continue to be that beacon on the hill. Lord, we know that we're not the only show in town, that there are other churches that preach the gospel but God, I can't imagine a better place to be. Lord, you have gifted so many men and women here in this church as leaders, not only of this local body, but of their own families and just the way they conduct themselves. So Lord, I pray that you would just show yourself strong and mighty as you protect the testimonies of the people that serve here so that Mission Road could never be drugged through the mud unjustly. God, thank you most of all for your Son and the blood that was shed on the cross, not for anything that He did, but for our sins. And because of that shed blood, because of that resurrection, because of the faith and trust that we have in your Son, the Savior, Lord, we are adopted into the family of God and we are brothers and sisters for now and forever. Thank you, God, for everything. Again, especially for your son. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.
1: You've been listening to a
0: presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible